Hey there, friends. It's Catherine Knuckles Wild, and I am back with another episode of Mesoamerican Studies On Air. In today's episode, we're going to be talking all about the hot debate surrounding Isthmian script. Now, I wrote about Isthmian script this week on the blog, so you can go ahead and check out that post if you want, but I'm going to do a quick recap here as well, just in case you haven't read that blog post. And then we're going to dive into the particulars about a hot debate currently ongoing regarding the decipherment of Isthmian script. In 1986, archaeologists found out about a slab of incised stone that they discovered to contain the first examples of what today we know as the Isthmian script. This stone was actually being used by local children near the area of La Mojarra in Mexico as a diving board to dive off into the river in which it was found. And that's actually precisely why it was so well preserved. is because the face of the stone was face down in the water, um, protected from the forces of erosion. So this stone, known today as La Mojarra Stila I, actually shows a portrait of a ruler holding up an offering. Surrounding this portrait is a lengthy text written in the Isthmian writing system. It's completely distinct from all other known writing systems in the area, but obviously clearly related to them. Isthmian is still under careful study and hot debate among Mesoamerican epigraphers, and that is what we're going to be talking about today. One of the things that I find most fascinating about academia is its constant state of flux. Sometimes we get the idea that academics simply produce ideas that are then widely accepted and promoted. But that's not always the case. In fact, that's very rarely the case. Within each field, there are ongoing debates between scholars who've taken the same data and interpreted it differently. There's this debate, for example, about the decipherment of Isthmian script that's very hot right now. You also have academics debating over the form of government at Teotihuacan, and a surprising number of people trying to decipher the source of the word cacao. I imagine these academic debates as a form of verbal dueling or a rap battle. Each side has their chance to state their claim, expressing their ideas in very specialized vocabulary that can sometimes wax poetic or aggressive. And then the next group steps up and says their piece. That's exactly what this debate has reminded me of as I've been reading through the scholarship regarding the decipherment of Isthmian. Just a little bit more about Isthmian before we dive into the actual debate itself. Isthmian is a script that belongs to the late pre-classic and the early classic period. We actually don't have very many sources of this script. We are only aware to date of three main bodies found on the Tuxla statuette, La Mujarra Stila I, and a stone mask in a private collection known as the Teo mask or the Teotihuacan mask. The first two of these objects, the Tukla statuette and the La Mojarra Stila I, were actually found in the region of Mexico's Isthmus of Tehuantepec, and they give the script its name, Isthmian. The Teo mask, unfortunately, as I mentioned, is in a private collection, and it lacks archaeological context, so it's impossible to say with absolute certainty whether this object comes from the same area, although from what we can tell, it seems pretty likely, and I'll talk about that a little bit when we cover this debate. So let's dive into the debate. Has Isthmian been deciphered? Well, let's introduce our players. We have two different teams, two sides to this argument. The first team is composed of Terence Kaufman and John Justison. 
John Justison is a linguist specializing in the evolution and adaptation of languages, particularly in Mesoamerica. And Terence Kaufman is another linguist, also specializing in the documentation of unwritten languages and Mesoamerican historical linguistics. Both of these scholars have done extensive and influential work in academia and are highly published in the Mesoamerican sphere. The second team is no less prominent than the first. It's composed of the late Michael Coe and Stephen Houston, two anthropologists specializing in Mesoamerican, particularly Maya, archaeology and language. Now, Michael Coe just passed away this year, and it's been a really sad thing for the field, but I'm really glad to be able to be looking at his work and to remind myself of the interesting ideas that he brought to the field that I think are still very relevant, clearly, today. Um, Stephen Houston also is at Brown University, and he is a prolific writer and publisher and has also published quite a few influential works for Mesoamerican studies. So let's talk about the first article. The first article was written by Terence Kaufman and John Justison in 1993. It was published in 1993 in the journal Science. And Terence Kaufman and John Justison start this article off with a very, very bold claim. The abstract of their paper says, the decipherment of part of the Epi-Olmec script of ancient Mexico which yields the earliest currently readable text in Mesoamerica, has been achieved over the last two years. I mean, wow, what a way to start, right? So they go on to explain that this discovery was made thanks to the long inscription at La Mojarra on the stela that we've discussed, and they talk a little bit about how they went about reconstructing these early languages. They put forward their argument that the language identified in the, in the inscriptions is pre-Proto-Socaean, and that that language is the ancestor of four languages currently spoken in the states of Veracruz, Tabasco, Chiapas, and Oaxaca. Now, this is a very bold claim, and you'll notice that when we get to the Houston and Co. article, there was a lot of pushback on this, especially because people were surprised that they could say that they deciphered the entire Epi-Olmec or Isthmian script within two years. Um, it's a very bold claim, especially since the Maya script is still not fully deciphered. And many, many, many academics have been working on deciphering the Maya script for a long time now. However, Kaufman and Justison do outline the keys to their decipherment, which rely on, first, the discovery of a lengthy text in the script, meaning the La Mujer Astila, Number two, the assumption that the texts were in Mijesokean languages. Three, an analysis of grammatical structures of the available texts. Four, an account of the structures in terms of the previously reconstructed grammar of Proto-Mijesokean. And five, clues to word meaning based off of calendrical constraints and from comparison with similar Mayan signs. Now, this is where we start to see areas where people could have pushback, right? They tell us that they base this work off of the assumption that the text recorded a Mijesokean language. There's really no way to know for sure what language is recorded by a script unless you have explicit knowledge of that or unless you have a biscript, basically a Rosetta Stone of sorts, that explains what you're looking at and can give you a translation. So this is a little problematic and it raised some flags for people. 
Now, Kaufman and Justison go on to explain that the text that they have read and deciphered provides a lengthy description of the rise of an epi-Olmec warrior king, um, so a late Olmec warrior king, um, who rose to kingship through several years of warfare and ritual activity. Now, they go along and they dive deep into how they came to these conclusions, um, not in extreme detail, but they do explain how they made their assumptions, how they came to those decisions. And they explained that sometimes they relied off of the pictorial quality of the word to determine what that word would have meant. So if something looked like a bearded version of the sun god, they would create a, a meaning based off of that image. They do mention that whereas in the old world, languages could initially be deciphered based off of proper names found in the scripts, but with, the, with this but with Isthmian writing, it was a lot harder to do that, especially because we don't have any bilingual texts. There is no Rosetta Stone. There's nothing that we can use to put these two texts together and sift out the meaning of the unknown script. They also mentioned that proper names were usually translated when they were borrowed, and we also don't have any Epi-Olmec proper names at the time. So that was kind of a dead end. But they explained how they moved forward by inferring that the Isthmian script would have been logosyllabic. Now, this I don't think is much of a stretch at all. If you've studied Mesoamerican scripts, you'll know that most, if not all, languages of Mesoamerica have been shown to be logosyllabic. And what that means is that the writing system is based off of a combination of word symbols and sound signs. So it's like a logogram is kind of like the ampersand that we use in English when we're trying to write and. We have a special symbol for it, and that's one symbol that indicates a full word. But then we also have letters that form our alphabet that create sound symbols. So the Mesoamerican writing systems are a combination of those two. They have word signs, but they also have sound signs. And so for them to have come to this conclusion, it's really not too much of a stretch. I think it's a very good argument. And based off of these assumptions, they moved forward and reconstructed Mikesokean patterns of grammar within the text. Now, they outlined some of the implications of their research. Their decipherment, they say, of Isthmian hieroglyphic writing has allowed us to identify the epi-omic language, to improve our understanding of Mikesokean language history, and to demonstrate specific similarities between Mayan and epi-omic writing systems. They talk about how they identified the grammar structure also as Mikesokean. And for those of you who don't know, Mikesokean is a language that existed near the Maya, um, but it was different from the Maya. So that's why they're talking about, um, about finding similarities between Mayan and epi-omic or Isthmian writing. They also find a lot of similarities between Mayan and Isthmian that they use to recreate this language and to decipher it. So they basically say, well, we know this about Mayan, so we can extrapolate or we can assume that something similar might have been happening with this Mikesokean language written in this Isthmian script. Their conclusion is that the Epiomic texts seem to be more prosaic, discursive, and explicit than Mayan texts, which basically is 
an academic way of saying these have a lot more of a narrative flow to them and they seem to be more conversational than the Maya stone inscriptions. They conclude by stating that methodologically, the Epi-Olmec situation provided almost ideal circumstances for decipherment. So coming out of this article, it's very clear that Kaufman and Justison are very proud of the work that they've done. They claim to have deciphered all of Isthmian script within a period of a little more than two years, which is astounding and it would be quite an accomplishment. Um, however, scholars did take issue with this. And that's where we get this fantastic rebuttal by Coe and Houston, which we're going to look at right now. Now, admittedly, it took a long time for a rebuttal to come out regarding this article. The original article was published in 1993, and it wasn't until 2000 that Stephen Houston and Michael Coe came up with their rebuttal that was published in the journal Mexicon that refuted Justin, Justison and Kaufman's claims. What prompted their article was the discovery of a brand new mask, the Teo mask that I mentioned earlier. And what Housen and Co. did is they took the values that Kaufman and Justison had published previously, where they said this sign means this, this sign means this, and this sign means this. Cohen Houston took those values and applied them to this new Teo mask. And according to them, the results produce utter gibberish. And so they wrote this article talking about how the decipherment of Isthmian really cannot be complete, or we would have had a clearer translation of the text on the Teo mask when we applied those values to it. So let's dive in to the article by Houston and Co. Has Isthmian writing been deciphered? So in this article, Houston and Co. come out swinging. They hold nothing back. And it, this is a very direct article, and reading it, I was very surprised. Just the, the direct and straightforward nature of the writing. And Houston and Co. began in the very first paragraph, saying that it is impossible that Kaufman and Justison could have deciphered this text because the corpus of text that we have is exceedingly small. We only have, at this point, at the publishing of the article, we only had those three sources. And that's a huge fighting point that they continue to bring up throughout this article, that it's impossible to say that you've deciphered all of a script when you only have three examples of that script. Halston and Co. based their argument off of five key principles that Michael Co. wrote about years ago that provide the ideal environment for decipherment. So according to Co. and his article that he published in 1995, in order to successfully decipher a script, you need five things. First, you need a corpus, basically a large and well-published database. So you need to have a lot of texts, and most of them should have complete sentences in them. Second, you need to be able to correctly identify and prove which language is encoded by the script. So you have to be able to reconstruct this language in phonology, grammar, and syntax, and take it back to the period in which the script was in use. Third, you need bilingual texts, at least one, but preferably more than one. And at least one of those texts needs to be in an already deciphered or readable script. The fourth principle is that you need to understand the cultural context. You need to understand the society in which this text was written so that you can understand the content of the text itself. And finally, if the script is logosyllabic or if it's mainly logosyllabic, then you need to have accompanying pictorial references to kind of explain what's going on. Otherwise, you could say that the script is saying anything but you don't have anything that actually proves it. Whereas having that pictorial reference, like an image that would be related to the script, does help to reinforce your argument. 
So they start out by saying, you know what, Maya script has this. It's really easy to, to see the, what it's saying. And they give some other examples of deciphered and undeciphered texts that rely upon these principles for their understanding or their lack thereof. They also come straight up and say, the more controversial your claim, the greater your need to maintain a tentative tone that invites open discussion and debate. Basically, they called Kaufman and Justison out and said, you guys just came in blazing and saying that you deciphered everything when really there's still a lot of questions and you probably should have had a more tentative tone instead of sounding so confident that you've 100% proven it. Um, as I said, these two went all out. So Houston and Co. go ahead and describe um, for readers who are not aware what the Justison and Kaufman proposal is. They explain what these two scholars said that they deciphered and they kind of pick it apart a little bit. So they mentioned the fact that in some cases, Kaufman and Justison looked at signs and understood them based off of context or what they call their iconic transparency, basically what it looks like. If it looks like a sun, then we're going to say it means sun. Um, they really call them out on that. And part of this argument involved pulling out some of those examples that Justison and Kaufman use, including, and I quote, squiggles that refer to things happening in the sky, close quote. So it was very sassy. Um, and and that, that is actually Kaufman and Justison's actual phrase to describe that sign. And Houston and Co. obviously took a really big issue with that. Apart from these difficulties, Houston and Co. also identify three problems with the decipherment. So they, you know, they, they set up this really big thing that just kind of picked at Kaufman and Justison and then said, besides all of that, we have three main issues with it. The first one is they say that, you know, Kaufman, he is very accustomed to working with living languages. And this is obviously not a living language. But they say that because of his custom of working with living languages, he, quote, appears to anticipate a relatively complete representation of language in ancient inscriptions. Basically, they're saying, Kaufman, you're seeing a lot of modern speech there that really wouldn't be seen in an ancient inscription. Because these ancient inscriptions tended to be a lot more succinct, and they didn't really have a lot of complex grammar. Whereas Kaufman and Justison's translation did have a lot of naturally flowing speech that used very complex grammar patterns that you just wouldn't see in an ancient inscription and that we've actually never seen in other Mesoamerican inscriptions. The second issue that they take is with their sign count. So Housen and Co. are saying that the number of signs indicates the nature of the system. So if you have just about 30 signs, you're most likely working with an alphabet. If you have 100 or more signs, you're probably working with a syllabary. You might be, it might be mixed with logographs or word signs, and anything bigger than that is going to be a logosyllabic system. Now, they recognize that Kaufman and Justison really only found about 185 hieroglyphs, more or less, when they counted them all up, which basically would have been consistent with a syllabary system, not a logosyllabic system. So they're saying, you know, even though this is highly likely that we're dealing with a logosyllabic system, you are only counting a certain number of signs, which doesn't account for the fact that this could be a logosyllabic system. Basically, they're saying, we agree with you, but your methodology is not giving you that same conclusion. We agree that it's five, but you said that two plus two equals five, and the math just isn't adding up. 
Finally, the third problem that they mention is one that I think is actually a very valid point. They claim that Justison and Kaufman are using coherence as a measure of validity. So basically they're saying that, quote, their work is valid because it has led to a complete, coherent, and grammatical text, close quote. And you can see how that becomes a vicious circle, right? Where if you're using coherence as a measure of validity, then if it makes sense, it must make sense. And if it makes sense, then it must make sense. You can see how that makes no sense whatsoever. But that was their main issue with it. Now, here comes the kicker. After all of this, they went ahead and shared their information about this new mask, the Teo mask. And they said, you know, they, they explained how they came across this mask. They talk about the shape of it, the way that it fits across a face. And they explained that it appears to be closer in style to masks coming from the Gulf Coast than, than to examples from Teotihuacan, leading us to believe that the name Teo mask is a little misleading, but that's what we're working with. So after explaining all of this, they talked to us about the text. They have a fantastic section where they explain the reading order of the text, the feel of the script. It's one of my favorite sections of this article. But the kicker is when they plug in Justice and Kaufman's values for the text on the mask. And it really doesn't make sense. I'm going to try to read here a column. Um, and I'm going to use blank for places where they didn't find a value. So some of these signs are signs that either were not deciphered by Justice and Kaufman or they weren't even seen by Justice and Kaufman the first time around. So according to Justice and Kaufman's readings, this is what the text on the Teo mask would say. Blank, 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 bloody, blank, ma, blank, mouth, blank, blank, 13, blank, take, ku, something, he, Hook take blank ku blank ha tu tuku cloth five sun blank ma blank etc etc. So you can see that there's a lot of repetition of the word take for some strange reason, but it doesn't explain what is being taken. You see a lot of references to blood, bludgeoning, sacrifice, drops of sacrifice, but there's no context for it to explain. So basically they came around and used Justice and Kaufman's own work against them, which albeit a little sassy, is very effective. And I think it lends a lot to the power of this article. So, in conclusion, Houston and Co. say that until we discover a biscript or some better imagery to accompany it, there's no way that we can decipher Isthmian. Basically, they're saying, you know, you tried, you did a great job trying, but you didn't give us enough information, you didn't tell us how you got to your conclusions, and you don't have enough supporting information to back your conclusions up. And that's where Houston and Co. left their argument. Now, for the longest time, that was the final word because there was no rebuttal. But just last year, in 2019, Justice and Kaufman came back with a final rebuttal. Let's look at that right now. So for this article, I'm going to give you a brief overview. This article is 83 pages long. It is a hefty, hefty, hefty one. And there's a lot going on here. So basically, I'm just going to explain to you the essence of this article. Justice and Kaufman, just like Houston and Co., brought the fire. They did not hold anything back. And in the very first section of their article, they say, well, we didn't know about 
that other reading, we didn't, we didn't know about the Teo mask, but now we do. And, quote, no revisions in our earlier readings of any syllabogram proves to be required, but the set of interpretable syllabograms and logograms has been increased by the new data, close quote. So, yeah, you're right, we didn't know about this when we wrote the first article, but now we do, and it doesn't change anything. In fact, we now have more information to play with. So they come out swinging. I absolutely love the way that they started this article. And then they go about explaining their methodology, which admittedly is something that they didn't really do in the first article. They explained a little bit of it, but it was very superficial and very veiled. And in this article, they just lay it all out. They explain everything. And I think that that adds a lot to the validity of this argument. They start by providing a cultural context, which is something that Mike Coe and Steve Houston definitely called them out on right away in that first article. And, you know, so they talked about the cultural context. They, they mentioned the Olmec tradition. They mentioned what we do know about that time period and the key characteristics of Mesoamerica, such as a long count calendar or a calendar round, which are very, very traditional Mesoamerican aspects. In fact, they use this calendar to kind of ground their argument and to explain how they arrived at some of these conclusions, such as the fact that it's a logosyllabic script. They then go ahead and explain some of the values, and I have to admit, in this article, they did a much better job of laying everything out for us to see, explaining the values of everything. Um, and they give us some of the readings. They say that the La Mojarra text opens with the following statement, quote, A sun-eating moon was happening. As a piercer, earlier, the bludgeon star Venus had shown. It was a late daytime one, close quote. Now, this is interesting. It does have some elements that I think are very, very Mesoamerican in style. So you have the idea of a sun-eating moon, which could be an eclipse, right? Um, then the, the bludgeon star, which they say is Venus, um, was shining. Now, Venus is an important part of Mesoamerican astronomy. Um, we have never heard of it being called a bludgeon star. But I think this passage gives you a really good idea of what Coe and Houston were talking about when they mentioned that the decipherment put forward by Kaufman and Justison seems to have some grammar that you wouldn't really see in an ancient inscription. Um, the was happening, um, that, that linguistic use is very rare in ancient inscriptions, as well as the had shown. That that use of the past participle is just very, very rare in ancient inscriptions. You actually never see it in the Maya inscriptions, at least that we know of. They also spend a good amount of time talking about these Venus cycles. There's a lot of calendrics going on in here. And then they explain some of the grammar that they put together from this. They talk about the different verbs that they found, the prepositions, the transitions, the dependent verbs. And they go a lot more in depth into the verb morphology of this writing system. They also talk about text genres. They suggest that the reason that these texts are so different from what we see in Maya inscriptions, for example, is because it's a different genre. There's a historical narrative and then there's a ritual text. Um, and they claim that the La Mojara Stila is a historical narrative, while the Tuxla statuette and the Teo style masks 
are fundamentally ritual texts, which is why you get different interpretations or different kinds of writing in them. From this, they suggest that we can start using this epigraphic evidence to start studying epiolmic ritual practices. Now, this article, as I mentioned, is extremely long, so I'm not going to go really in-depth with all of the numbers and the translations. You can access this article online through Google Scholar. Um, but I wanted to just finish by reading you some of their translations of the text that you would find on the Teo mask. So they came back and explained the values and suggested brand new readings for the Teo mask that are different from Housen and Co's and seem to make a little bit more sense. So here are some of the phrases that they suggest come from the Teo mask. In the middle of the place, before dawn, two blood stokers have been prepared in advance. On 13 flint, furry forepaws and a cotton cloth garment will get taken and dyed. On 5 sun, a rulerly personage will be a captive. In the middle of the place, a skin is your protective covering. Your shining thing is a rulerly garment. The headgear types are new spear thrower effigies and your ridge clothing's magay. On Ten House, your taken one is a scaffold captive. He is your blood collection's filler or painter. And it continues on from there. So that is the summary so far of this great academic debate about the decipherment of Isthmian. Basically, we had Justin and Kaufman coming out saying, we've done it. Houston and Co. said, actually, no, you didn't. And Justin and Kaufman came back again and said, actually, yes, we have. It'll be really interesting to see in the future if there's a rebuttal from the opposite side. But we will have to wait and see in the future if any other arguments arise. What do you think? Has Isthmian writing been deciphered? Do any of these readings make sense to you? Why or why not? In the meantime, be sure to check out our other podcast episodes and stay tuned for next week's episode on Olmec art and culture, where we're going to be diving into the pre-classic period a little bit more, and we'll have some more special guests for you. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.